0: Um, learn working with ambiguity, because that's what design is.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the Arc podcast, a podcast all about architecture, tech, design, and a whole lot more. So in this episode, we have with us architect and professor Newton D'Souza, who's been part of our industry for more than 20 plus years as a professional architect, interior designer, and educator. So he presently works as an associate professor at the Department of Interior Architecture at Florida International University in Miami. Uh, He's written numerous research papers, uh, special issue journals, books, which have been published widely, and he's been a recipient for various awards for his excellence in the academic side of architecture. His most notable book, which he's authored, is called The Multi-Skilled Designer, which talks about the unique cognitive thought process of top architectural designers like Zaha Hadid, Daniel Libeskind, Peter Zumtor, and so on. And it really gives you an insight on the cognitive side of architecture. It's a very interesting read, and I would definitely recommend for you to check it out. The link would be in the description for this episode. So what are you going to learn in this episode? You're going to learn more about Newton's journey into architecture, how he transitioned from pursuing his BArch in Bangalore to then going to do his PhD in the States. And then we dwell more about design. What exactly is design? How do you define architectural design? Decoding the thought process of an architect and how technology is going to influence the world and how we design going forward. So this is a very interesting episode with a lot of cool topics that we talk about. Uh, the link for the show notes and more would be on our website and also in the YouTube description below. Now with that said, let's head straight to the episode and learn more about design, uh, Newton's journey and also what exactly is interior architecture. Let's go. All right, Great. Uh, to kick things off, uh, give us a brief about yourself, You know how you got started and how you went Ventured into the world of architecture.
0: Absolutely. Um, so currently, I am a, uh, serving as an associate professor and chair of uh, the Department of Interior Architecture at the University uh, Florida International University in Miami. Um, my journey actually started, uh, you know, right after the pre-university days. Uh, you know, back back in India. You usually don't get into architecture in the regular route. You go through majors like science or arts, and then you move into architecture. So I was a science major and had to make the shift into architecture. Um, one of the advantages I had was my dad was a civil engineer, um, and uh, uh, you know the orientation happened pretty early, um, and I was reasonably good at uh, fine arts and. Um, I wouldn't say design, but, you know, art, uh, sculpture and things like that. So, um, so that was a a reasonably good transition for me. And once I came into architecture, I was more interested in the conceptual thinking uh, in the design process, in the psychology of architecture, uh, more than more than design itself. So that was a a very brief uh, introduction into my journey into how I came into architecture.
1: So you studied in uh, U- 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 Vishweshara, right, in Bangalore. So that's uh, when I got to know about that, I was very surprised. And uh, <laughs> so how was it back then? Like, this was in the 90s, right? But, uh, yes, so
0: this was, uh, I would say, late 80s. Right. Uh, so I feel very ancient right now. But um, yeah, so UC Bangalore was uh, a pretty good school. It, it's one of the oldest school in architecture in Bangalore. Uh, named after Visya one of the greatest uh, civil engineers that India has produced. Um, We had really good uh, professors, uh, very uh, well-versed. They had taught there for a long time. Of course, when I joined, uh, the school itself was undergoing a transition because of uh, 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 incidents that had happened prior. Um, But we had great colleagues. uh, th- it was a blessing to be on the campus. It was really beautiful. Um, at that time, you know, the, the, I was at uh, the Nyanavarti campus in Kengeri, which Great. is outside, good, uh, right. outskirts of Bangalore, although now it's become a part <laughs> of Bangalore. Yes. Um, so I, I really enjoyed being there. Um, my hometown is actually Mangalore, so I stayed in the residence uh, hostel there. And uh, the best experiences I had in, in uh, the school was obviously the field trips, uh, which mm-hmm. was sponsored by uh, the taxpayers. And we got to see uh, South India, North India. So we really enjoyed the experiential aspects of the field trips. Nice. And of course, uh, uh, NASA was something that we always looked forward to, uh, to go to. And I think at that time, I participated in the Jadapur University calcutta uh, nasa as well as uh, uh i think it was uh, mumbai um so those were the high points of uh, of being in, in
1: and did you in win in nasa as well Pardon. and did you win the competitions uh, which you had uh, no you
0: know? unfortunately no <laughs> uh, um later on my juniors uh, a couple of uh, well-known architects uh, actually won some of the competitions Right. Um, so we had a good legacy prior to that, too. We had a couple of our seniors win, win the competitions at NASA. But right. no, not me.
1: <laughs> awesome. And then uh, you pursued uh, a master's, right? Before that, uh, you did work for, for quite some time in India and then decided to pursue a master's. So could you take us through that transition, you know, when you decided to pursue master's and learn more about the cognitive side or... Uh, interest in psychology and design and more more about that.
0: Yes, Um, after I finished my graduation, of course, I wanted to be in the field, you know, practice and uh, my dad was running his civil engineering practice. So there was something that I could look forward to uh, in the future to be a part of his practice as well. So I went into uh, practice uh, immediately um, I interned, uh, actually after graduation, I worked for a Zakaria consultant at that time for a couple right. of years. Um, and at that time, I was uh, working more on apartments and um, institutional projects. Um, it, the late uh, Zakaria was uh, very, very uh, supportive and, um, you know, very nice person and approachable person to work with. Uh, he put me in, in these uh, large projects uh, just to kind of be in teams of other designers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to do a number of schematic drawings uh, for large scale projects. Um, so after that, I uh, went back to, to Mangalore and uh, had uh, my own practice with my dad. He did the engineering part and I did the architecture part. Nice. Uh, they I focused more on uh, residential, you know, detached homes and uh, uh, small scale projects that uh, you could run in a small practice. So, so after that, I think it was around, uh, I also uh, worked for Neville D'Souza Architects in Mangalore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a lot of uh, healthcare design and uh, educational projects. And uh, so that was uh, a very interesting experience
1: as well. Um, and back then there was no CAD, it was mostly drafting, right?
0: Yes, it was all um, uh, drafting and the computers were just coming in, we were transitioning in some places, but most of us were still in the traditional backbending work of doing right. drawings. Um, and after of completing or during that time, I was uh, you know, getting a little bit burnt out and Mm -hmm. wondering what's next, right? Uh, Should I continue in my own practice or should I take a break? And um, I also had this, uh, you know, interest in furthering my education. Uh, So it was a hard decision because um, leaving a practice that you're trying to establish and moving to another country and studying again, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, it takes a little bit of uh, thinking and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, positive uh, mindset to do that. So um, so when I got the opportunity to uh, to do my education in Singapore, I took it and um, it was great because uh, one thing is that I came there for a short term, I would say mm-hmm. two years, I finished my master's and I go back to India and compl- uh, continue my practice, but that never happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, partly because I got so consumed in in the research process of design Mm -hmm. um, thinking about how do I optimize my own thinking uh, are there better ways of designing so I got interested in the process and conceptualization Mm -hmm. of design itself Um, so after that uh, one of my colleagues um, you know uh, mentioned about the PhD program in the states and Hmm. um somehow i got interested in that and i thought okay i've come this far maybe i should continue and that took me to journey back to the
1: states awesome um uh, since uh, you spoke about you know your interest in the process of uh design uh could you maybe elaborate on uh, the book which you've written which is uh Related to a lot about uh, design thinking and how architects think about their design process. So, what exactly is uh, design like? How do we define design because it's very subjective and very relative to uh, people to culture? So, what is good design, and how would you uh, you know define design?
0: Yeah, that's a very complex question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, when I started my master's uh, project, uh, doing research on design. Um, here I was, you know, uh, five years in architecture school, about six, seven years in practice, and I thought I knew everything about what design was. Um, but as I spoke to my mentor, I still remember in the first couple of weeks uh, he mentioned what is design, right? Um, and uh, you need to get back to first principles. You need to start questioning your biases, mm-hmm. um, and so I started thinking about it and trying to see have other people written about it is this my own uh, perspective Uh, what is the literature available here and so as i was doing more and more research i came across this whole area of research called design cognition Mm -hmm. and in simple terms design cognition is the uh, knowing about how designers think create and solve problems and um, if you look at different disciplines from architecture design to mechanical design to software design, mm-hmm. graphic design, ecological design, there are certain uh, time-honored principles that you know go across as consistent that designers do, but there are also uh, differences, right? Um, because each of the professions do different things. So uh, I was, uh, when I, started doing research on design then I thought maybe the strategy is not to figure out what is design but maybe mechanisms that are common to how designers think Mm -hmm. and solve so I started focusing on the behavior of designers and some of the things that you know that can come across is um, design is a wicked problem right when I say wicked problem I say it as opposing to a tame problem Uh, Horst Rittel and Weber have written about wicked problems is that they're not Mm -hmm. Uh, well-defined. They're very ambiguous. So for example, a client asks you to design a home and you don't know where to start, right? It's a wicked problem. So now you need to start defining it because it's so ill-defined. Okay, for how many people? What's your cultural background? Uh, Who lives in this home? What do you want from it? So this is the way of kind of resolving uh, wicked problems to deal into it directly by trying to ask questions and trying to frame the problem. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Uh, So design is more about problem framing uh, or problem seeking uh, first before problem solving, right? Which is a little bit different from engineering problems where you focus more on problem solving. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other things that are common to design is that um, design is also like puzzle making, right? You're not really uh, trying to arrive at design in a linear way. It is—it's kind of puzzles that you're putting together.
1: Right.
0: Um, design has late blooming goals, right? Which doesn't appear to you in the beginning. So somewhere in the middle of the design process, you have new goals to adhere to. Mm-hmm. Um, I still remember when I was designing for Zakaria consultants and the client wanted a hotel. So I worked on it for about two months. After two months, the client decided that he would rather have a residential apartment. And that's a late blooming goal that you didn't anticipate. Later on, he came back and says he wants a mix of both. Right.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So design becomes more resolved as you delve deeper into it. And so, So so there are nature that design problems have that are different from other kinds of uh, problems. Um, Design has uh, very unique representations. We we do sketch, we do conceptual drawings. Uh, The representations that we do are very unique. Um, We also have, uh, design is a very iterative process. It's not linear, you kind of come back in circles. Um, it's like you're telling your student to go in this direction, and you later realize after ten days they'll come back to where they started, right? Yeah. So there's a cyclical process that happens. Um, we we talk about how uh, design cannot be solved with one solution; there are alternative solutions. So when you think about design, instead of looking at what is the right way of design or the wrong way of design can think of what is the nature of design and what are the properties of design. So you're more aware of it. And as designers, we, I think, have to uh, somehow come to terms that design is a swamp, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It is uh, something that we have to jump into uh, and it's a nature of the design problem. Sometimes we feel uh, kind of swimming in the swamp without knowing where we are going. But if you think of it as that's the nature of design that you have to jump into the swamp to get into a solution it becomes easier than to think of it as another way of thinking so that's where my focus has been all right Uh,
1: but how would you define you know like good design and uh, bad design because um, if you take a building and you come uh, you show to a certain set of people in different regions Uh, what one would consider good would then be considered bad in another region. So, uh, you know, how would you define good design and bad design? And also, if you uh, look at the works of the biggest architects in the world, um, when you look at their projects, there's always this sense of, uh, you know, uh, uh, having that good design sense or having that sense of reverence uh, when you enter their spaces. So, how would you define, uh, you know, good design and bad design?
0: That's a very good question. Um, as you said, there are subjective aspects of design. Uh, there is also the domain within which you operate, right? Um, there are gatekeepers in any profession. So we look look up to people who have done certain things in a certain way. Um, the, the great uh, Mihai and Howard Gardner have come up with a theory for, you know, a framework for creativity where they say, it's like design where It's hard to judge who are the more creative people, right? Mm -hmm. So they come up with a framework called, there is the domain aspect of creativity where the domain tells you this is creative, a group of people who define the profession. Then there is the individual aspect of creativity where individual subjective people say this is good, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a field itself. There are gatekeepers in the field who define. So these are our... Publishers or art critics who say what is good design.
2: Right. So
0: design then becomes a kind of a triangulation of all those three different perspectives. Um, so uh, it's kind of hard for me to answer that question. But uh, in in my book, uh, the multi-skilled designer, I focused on uh, certain consistent ways that people do design that bring certain experiential uh, richness to it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I have chosen a body of work where uh, designers have, uh, have consistently uh, or many, many years of practice have come up with uh, solutions that uh, are functional, are creative or uh, brings delight to people. Uh, it's very experiential obviously, uh, again, how you experience a project depends on the cultural background you're coming from. Uh, It depends on the fit to the context that you're designing in, right? For example, somebody like uh, Corbusier can be considered a great designer. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there is critiques about, you know, was that successful in this particular place, right? Was it more universally designed? So, so rather than focusing on a good versus bad designer, uh, I would like to think of it as uh, designers who can consistently create a certain experience. And that experience has been, um, you know, uh, enriched by how people have interacted with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the examples I have provided uh, in, in my book are, you know, designers like uh, Daniel Libeskin, mm-hmm. Peter Sumter. Um, And I, I, I wouldn't say that these are, you know, examples of great designers in a certain area. So I've uh, kind of brought in a very inclusive set of people. So somebody like Alejandro Arwena, you look mm-hmm. at his projects, you might say, well, aesthetically it doesn't look great, right? Mm-hmm. But is it socially persuasive? Yes, right? So how you judge design, I think has to be done within that specific uh, paradigm. Um, somebody like uh, Lou Kahn's projects are considered very spiritual and very mm-hmm. experiential. Um, I've been to uh, buildings designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. There is a special quality that you just have to experience to feel it, right? Absolutely. Um, and so yeah, so, so there are masters who have, uh, who have probably thought about it and, and kind of failed a lot of times, right? Not all of their projects are great too. Um, so there are some failures and they've learned from those failures and figure out you know, what's the best combination uh, that they can bring to a certain project. So, um, so that's a long way of not answering your question. <laughs>
1: I mean, um... I just want to uh, you know, ask you about uh, how someone can become as good as Daniel Libeskin or Peter Zumthor. Uh, are these architects that good because of pattern recognition, because of creating so many designs over the years that they you know, eventually get good at designing buildings or spaces? So uh, is there a way to hack that? Because now we have technology... There's uh, so many new uh, ways we can design where it's not just uh, sketching, but literally uh, sketching on the computer. So, um, you know, is design being compressed, being hacked uh, in the 21st century where every single output would be good design?
0: Well, that's another absolutely great question. Um, With all the technology that is coming through, I have students who... No, might not. I wouldn't consider great sketchers, right? Uh, they might not be able to put uh, uh, as much um, skill in their sketching ability, mm-hmm. but they're able to use technology to compensate for it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a good question about how do these designers that we um, adore and um, you know uh, want to. Um, somehow be inspired from, uh, what what differentiates them from, from others, the run-of-the-mill designers? Um, if you look at uh, somebody like uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's project, um, it, there is, uh, of course, you know, I think he's probably designed about 800 projects throughout his lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of refine and refine and come to a state where things becomes much easier, right? You have refined your thinking and um, uh, you understood what experience is for a long time that you're able to do it much better than a novice designer. Um, There's a whole argument in psychology about the nature and nurture personalities, right? How much can be learned? How much is it innate? And uh, psychologists will tell you there's a lot of talent and intelligence, especially, is uh, more based on uh, nature rather than nurture. There's very little you can do if you don't have the innate talent. Right. So somebody like uh, uh, Noam Chomsky and other uh, psychologists would tell you that that um, you know that's the case. Um, but others would tell you, well, that's not true. There's a lot you can learn, right? Nature uh, nurture is as important. Uh, in fact, the new cognitive, uh, the, the neuropsychology tells you that brain is uh, very plastic. There is plasticity that the very thought of something changes the composition of your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a very interesting aspect that you can still develop thinking and talent even at a later stage, even if you haven't been given the God's gift to do it. So, yeah, somebody like uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, I would say was very gifted, right? You could, uh, he he, uh, didn't sketch a lot. If you look at his uh, archives, uh, there's not a lot of sketching that has taken place. Um, His gift was in visualizing the whole project in his brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would take that whole thinking and put it on, you know, as, as if it was a working drawing in a very accurate kind of way. Right. Uh, and that only few designers can do, right? But others like Lou Khan, for example, is just about traces on traces on traces, trying to refine the project sketching. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, uh, there are uh, incidences where Lou Khan uh, couldn't uh, produce his projects on time because he got so consumed in his own thinking about a project and he probably lost some commissions too because of that. Mm-hmm. So so there is, I think, um, you know, uh, I don't know, design is so so subjective and such a individual kind of uh, discipline that you develop over time that it becomes hard to generalize um, how do we hack it. Now coming to technology, that's another interesting uh, dimension that has come up over the last three, four decades, right? Mm -hmm. Um, For example, if you look at uh, parametric design or uh, shape grammar, uh, you can put in projects done by other people and come up with hundreds of solutions in the same style. Mm -hmm. So in shape grammarists will do that, they will put uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's projects, extract those rules and say, if Frank Lloyd were to design now, how would it look like, right? Yeah. Um, and then the question of authorship is an issue there, right? So who, who designed it? If, if the technology drove those algorithms and rules to do certain projects,
2: mm-hmm.
0: who is the designer, right? So there is a little bit of ethical questions there about the profession itself. Uh, authorship, and um, as we move further on uh, into this new area of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, I think those questions will will linger on. Um, and then more and more design has moved away from this iconic individual designer to a more collaborative profession. Right? You need a mm. team now to design. Uh, the iconic uh, individual designer. Uh, of the 70s and 80s uh, is no longer uh, because the technology has become the the great leveler. Um, In fact, uh, the Arup Arup designers talk about the the techie enabled architect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So technology becomes the the main, uh, how do you say, uh, a ground in which other consultants can come in and play the game. Um and, and that's a different design process than the 70s and 80s where a designer would do the complete project, move yeah. it to a consultant, and move on from
1: there. So uh, Yeah, talking about that, uh, you know, in our academic uh, careers, we have always thought about uh, like being the solo architect and being the solo designer. But the world is rapidly changing towards more team-oriented, work, team oriented designs, and you feel that in the future, designs would be like an amalgamation of multiple people's uh, visions or multiple people's goals, or maybe even like an agile approach towards design, where we get out fast designs because of uh, a big team working on it, or maybe even like four to five people, but it's not uh, just one person. It's always a team working towards design. So how would design evolve in that case? Absolutely, Um,
0: we already are in the era of what we call as co-designing, that is collaborative designing. And in the future, people have written about this, that uh, the design team is gonna be made not only by designers uh, and consultants, but also researchers Mm -hmm. and clients uh, working together. So there's a participatory aspect where the client comes in uh, and participate in the design process as much as the designer itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the research informing design concurrently, right? So, uh, so it's 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 the landscape of a design process is changing. Um, and of course, technology is a large part of it, but also how uh, the professions are coming to know each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and uh, again, it brings in these questions of uh, can non designers design, mm. right? So, what would be the role of a designer then if others are able to design? And so, there are purists who say, well, design is design that nobody else knows about, it's mysterious and it yeah. has its own unique intelligence that uh, you cannot train others to who are not trained in. So there are purists who, who have that kind of view that um, designers have a specific role to play and it's fixed and that's it. But then there are others who consider the view that, you know, designers are more of uh, coordinators. Uh, they, are, uh, they are the ones who provide leadership. Uh, They're the ones who bring different consultants together. They are the ones who know the big picture. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone knows the big picture. They're the ones who drive the process towards a certain conceptual goal. Um, so th- there is this kind of a, we are in a very interesting phase where you're still trying to figure that out, you know, what's the right way. Mm-hmm. And if you add the layer of technology on top of it with these BIM and uh, other kinds of modeling softwares where it's easy, easily accessible by different consultants to come in. Uh, concurrently, um, then it kind of becomes even more complex, right? So who is the author? Who's driving the process? Uh, I still remember during my architecture days that uh, after we finished the schematic design and detailed drawings, then we would go to the consulting uh, structural engineer. Mm -hmm. He would put his columns, and then you would get mad about where to put his columns. And (laughs) there would be a little bit back and forth. But it would be a very linear process. But today, the structural engineer, the mechanical engineer, the electrical engineer, uh, the architect, the interior design they're all kind of thinking almost concurrently and, uh, and, and even when they are in different countries, right? They're able to collaborate. Mm-hmm. That was not happening before. Yeah. So it's a very interesting complex landscape in which we find ourselves in. Um, and then there are some uh, other uh, people who talk about the profession of design being extinct uh, after some years because mm-hmm. of this whole era of artificial intelligence and right. automation that, uh, you know, is changing the way people are looking at design.
1: All right. Um, talking more on a philosophical note, uh, you know, uh, design is not, it's all, not always necessary that the end product should be a product if it's uh, design. It can also be designing life or, you know, uh, designing uh, public spaces where, or designing a society where, you know, everything is open so uh, could you touch upon, you know, how how design can transcend from not just being a product, but also uh, about life or uh, uh, about philosophy in general?
0: That's a good point, right? Um, design is one product of architecture. It doesn't have to be the only product. Yeah. Um, there, there are a number of designers... Uh, people come to mind Zaha Hadid. Um, A lot of her projects were not materialized for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did it more as a philosophical uh, kind of uh, way of thinking. You have people like Daniel Libeskin for a long time, he was an academician um, and he was working on his own representational uh, uh, media. You have Banachumi. Uh, who's trying to find a new language to talk about design. Um, yeah, so, so design is just one of the products, but you know, I, I look at design as a way of thinking, uh, as a way of framing the world. You can frame the world in different ways. You can look at the world in different worldviews. Design is one of the way of looking at it, right? Um, for me, uh, what is interesting in design is Yes, we are so solution focused that we are always looking to the future. We want to create something out there and experience it. But we also, uh, we we kind of neglect of how much analysis happens in the process of designing, right? For me, the whole analytical part of design is as interesting. Uh, We wouldn't have uh, interesting maps of certain cities without designers, right? um the way we look at design from a uh different perspective um the contribution that designers have done to history uh historians might look at uh cities and people in a different way but designers might look at it in a completely different way right Mm -hmm. so the the contribution that designers have done to urban design um urban thinking urban planning um and the whole notion of uh, there's a future there that you can project, right? I talk about design designers having a X-ray vision. Um, you can look at a building and look through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many, how many professions can do that, right? Um, can you look through a building and project everything that's within it, including how the columns and beams and slabs are, are kind of, uh, you know, composed. So I think there's a lot that designers do uh, that, besides design. Um, Leatherbarrow, a very prominent educationalist, talks about um, just the representations that designers do, right? Um, there are beautiful representations and, and maps and um, spatial compositions that we do that designers that might not end up as design, but they are, you know, works of uh, knowledge and works of art in themselves. Um, uh, the collages that, that happen during the process of design, uh, whether it materializes or not, it brings new insights. We, we can look at and project at things that, uh, in multiple layers that others might not be able to. So yes, there is that aspect of design. There's also the aspect of activism and social change that designers can do, right? Because Mm -hmm. we look at the world in a a different way that we, we, whether it's right or not, we have conviction in our solutions, Mm
2: -hmm. right?
0: Because we are trained to think positively. Um, Engineer might scoff at us saying that you have too much conviction because uh, you don't have the data to support what you're trying to uh, you know, propose. Right. But designers are brought up with that confidence that first you propose and then we see, we test it out. So there is this whole aspect of design thinking about testing and iteration and, and going in that iterative cycle that other professions are also now looking at and saying, oh, that's another interesting way of looking at wicked problems because wicked problems can happen in other professions as well,
2: mm-hmm. so
0: uh, Stanford University, where the D School is the Design School, they have somehow brought that aspect of design thinking into their, you know, uh, mechanical engineering in the software uh, department and startups. So, right. um, so there are a lot of the pattern recognition that you mentioned before that designers are able to recognize patterns that happen randomly that we are able to. Uh, recognize those and give meaning to it where meaning wasn't there before. So I think philosophically, there's a lot that uh, that designers can contribute.
1: All right. Awesome. Um, uh, do you feel that, uh, you know, the future of design, how would you feel the future would of design look like? Uh, do you feel that it would be a collaboration uh, between... Uh, a lot of algorithms and uh, uh, AI coming in coming to the picture. And uh, do you feel that design can be solved? Like if AI can, uh, like for example, if you take the example of uh, solving chess, where uh, the AI learns to play chess on its own from the start and running through various games, uh, thousands and thousands of games, learning those patterns, it keeps getting better and eventually beats the grandmasters. So uh, do you feel that even design in a certain sense uh, where the algorithm learns from its own patterns and then slowly keeps getting better and better and better? So do you feel that kind of sort of a future coming?
0: Well, there are certainly um, futurists who talk about that, right? Um, where is design heading and whether you, you even need a designer anymore. Um, and artificial intelligence is a great example of that machine learning thing that happens and it evolves and learns and develops its own intelligence, right? Um, one of the things that, uh, I, 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 am, I have mixed feelings on it. On one hand, I can see the potential of, uh, something like artificial intelligence doing things that humans might not be able to, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's also other things that makes us human, right? Uh, What makes us human? Mistakes makes us human, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of designs wouldn't have happened if people hadn't done certain mistakes. Uh, What makes us human? Common sense makes us human. Can we teach common sense to a computer? That's hard because it's kind of a local colloquial thing that we do. Yeah. Uh, Marvin Minsky, the father of artificial intelligence, uh, for many years he talked about um, the potential of artificial intelligence. And at some point he said, I think we should focus on common sense because that is an important aspect that it's hard to define with an mm-hmm. algorithm. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, there are pa- pa- parametric designers like Greg Lin and others who. Uh, talk about uh, as designers, we are falling behind in the curve of how technology can be used. And his view is that instead of uh, being a little bit myopic about it, we should embrace it. Um, Designers should start learning code. And instead of using computers as an aid to design, it should be part of how you design, right? Um, and in the past, I've written a couple of papers on shifting our framework from computers being tools of design to tools of design, right? right. Um, so if you think about it that way, there are potential in terms of bringing information that probably a sole designer is not able to handle within their lifetime. Mm-hmm. There's in, uh, there is a uh, potential of bringing in evidence that has been proved well in the past. There's a potential of bringing some objective judgment into uh, what we do. So I see that more as a complementary aspect of designing, and that as designers, we'll always retain the playfulness, the creative thinking, what makes us human, um, and the human touch we, we provide. In fact, there are some futurists who already talk about that humans are becoming more important because of robotics. It's Mm -hmm. not the other way around. Um, Because now we are kind of missing what it is to be human. So so I'm kind of not too pessimistic about the whole uh, era of technology coming in and taking away what we are doing. But certainly I think we embrace it and we we try to frame it. Um, And something that uh, I always believe is Uh, As designers, I think we should be able to define the technology we need rather than technologies telling us what kind of technology um, is coming up in the market. So there is a role for us to play there. And taking that leadership role, I think, will change how technology is being used as well. Absolutely.
1: Right. And uh, talking about the human side of things, uh, do you feel that, uh, you know, now uh, technology is uh, governing the way we live? more than we governing technology. And um, also uh, a lot of us are glued to our screens and uh, we're losing that human touch, which uh, you sort of mentioned. So um, I don't know if there's any relation to design, but you know, uh, how much of a character change would there be in uh, humans or would even design affect character changes in humans?
0: Could you, could you repeat that? I didn't follow the first part of the question.
1: Uh, yeah. I, uh, what I tried to uh, put, uh, mention was, uh, you know, uh, because of technology, we are more glued to our screens. The attention span of a uh, average human is now less than seven seconds. So, um, you know, like, uh, because of the screen uh, century, like, a lot of us are, you know, glued to screens. Do you feel that... Um, Uh, the human character is changing like we uh, we sort of now like indoor spaces more than outdoor spaces or uh, the way we think as humans is changing and uh, do you feel that design will also um, in in a way change or maybe even help us come back to the real world
0: that's another interesting question Um, there are always these cycles right between things going to one extreme and coming back. Um, a good example is the open office system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had the closed office for a while, then the open office became a very big fad. And then mm-hmm. after the COVID era, people are going back to the closed offices. So there is kind of back and forth, which happens in design in different paradigms. So the, the screen um, or, or the remote kind of things that we are doing right now, is another paradigm shift, right? In how we are operating. Um, so there is this kind of a sense of being not tangible. Uh, mm-hmm. The presence is not felt. We, right now we're talking about Zoom and there are only two senses that we are working with, visual and the oral. Um, what, what about the bodily kinesthetic sense? What is the, the gestural and the, the smell, right? Those Mm -hmm. kinds of things we are not experiencing. So certainly the multi-sensory experience is being lost with the the screens. uh, And maybe that's the reason why, you know, after the COVID hit, a lot of people wanted to go out because they're so Mm -hmm. stuck within the whole two-dimensional aspect of experience. Um, In fact, I think the, the, uh, how do we put it? Um, Design, designers, at least for a long time have been talking about experience, have been talking about space, right? Not just in terms of material space, mm-hmm. phenomenological space, um, uh, and and thinking about dimensions, three dimensions, uh, and even fourth, the time dimension in architecture. Um, so I think there is something to, said about that, that as designers, we find creative ways to uh, adapt to this new era that we are living in. Uh, I've written a couple of papers on how in the COVID era, home designs are changing, Mm -hmm. or office designs are changing, or healthcare design is changing. Um, One of the things uh, I talk about is a good example would be uh, people who are dying alone in the hospitals, hmm. right? Uh, because of COVID, uh, nobody can visit them. How do you negotiate that experience? Um, because uh, the only way you can communicate with a loved one who's dying is through technology, right? Yeah. Um, and then people are using very simple technology like uh, FaceTime uh, to communicate. Um, And and we're missing upon that experiential aspect of being together when someone is dying. So that's kind of changing how we are thinking about design. And I think as designers, we need to, uh, we need to creatively uh, uh, figure out what are the alternatives um, for for the virtual dimension. Um, At some point I've talked about, instead of talking about virtual versus physical experiences maybe we should talk about a continuum between virtual and physical, mm-hmm. right? Um, so for example, um, you know, I go to a coffee shop. Uh, I don't meet a friend, but I'm talking to a Facebook friend. Mm-hmm. Um, is that an interaction that is real or is it authentic or it's not, right? It's hard to say. On one hand, you can say, well, the experience is real. I'm actually talking to a Facebook friend. At the same time, you can say, well, it's not real because they're virtual. So there are different viewpoints on what makes a place, right? The people, the space, the interaction, or is it more than that? Um, So there is an interesting kind of, I would say, dichotomy between the kind of screen presence that we are having versus the real life interactions we are having. There are some views which say, the virtual interactions are not really real, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like going to Disneyland and and drinking, uh, uh, you know, a champagne from a French cafe. You're not actually in France, you're in Disneyland. Mm -hmm. So that experience is not real. But then some might say, well, for me, it was real, right? I had real wine and it felt like I was at that point I was in Paris. Uh, I was nowhere else. Mm-hmm. So, so it brings in interesting philosophical questions about what is place experience? What is architectural experience? And how do we reconceptualize it uh, in this new era where screen presence is becoming more prominent?
1: And uh, also sounds like a Black Mirror episode, uh, which we're heading towards too, right?
0: Yes. Uh, The the biggest dilemma is, I think, um, at least our generation, the generation X and Y, who have been brought up in a different mindset and conceptualization of what place is, Mm -hmm. versus the new generation, Mm -hmm. for whom technology is not outside of their lived experience. It's a part of their lived experience. So, uh, and that reflects at different levels, right? When you're teaching in an architecture school, you're actually teaching the way you have been taught um, in this 80s and 90s. And of course we adapt and we bring in new technology, but the mindset is still the same. Is that something that the new generation of students uh, require? Mm. Um, On the other hand, you know, is it worthwhile to radically change the way we do things? Because yeah. there are time-honored principles which are still important. Something like sketching. I treasure sketching, right? Because it's not just about drawing a product, it's about a way of thinking. Um, and today, uh, the students might not be so uh, well-versed in that because they don't have the training to do it. So. Yes, uh, I think there's a generational divide in which we look at things. And the generational divide is becoming smaller and smaller because uh, right now in a three, four years apart and you're coming up with a new moment of technology, the touch generation, the Mm. generation which hasn't seen, you know, hasn't written, uh, 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 hasn't worked on a handwriting on a book, right? so the way of thinking and the way their brain functions might be radically different from the way we function. Um, something like TikTok might be a very foreign thing to us, mm-hmm. but for the current generation, it's not just a, a tool. It's, it's a way they express themselves. Um, and so um, it's a way they communicate. And it's not something they do outside of the routine. It is their routine uh so that's uh, that brings in very interesting questions about design and space
1: all right brilliant um you've been a professor for interior architecture at florida university um i just want to touch upon you know architectural education where the world now requires fast solutions uh, architects uh, with good experience but uh, generally we do not have that experience And uh, do you really, do you feel that, you know, we really need to study for five years or uh, six years to become an architect? Or uh, if you look at architects like Tadao Ando, where, you know, he had a very, he never actually studied architecture for that matter. So do you feel that education is required to become an architect or is it more of the experience that matters?
0: That's another very interesting question. Uh, already there are moments in the United States where people are saying, you know, five years is too long, you need to accelerate that degree, uh, maybe we bring in internship experience early mm-hmm. and make it a part of the hours for licensing so uh, people don't start the examination process after they graduate, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a big grind, um, we are losing students because they cannot endure Uh, the longevity of being in in a field like this, which demands so much. Um, Yeah, so so I think it comes back to the question of skills and what we can teach and what we can't teach, right? Mm -hmm. There are certain aspects of design that you just, it's kind of learning by doing. If you don't experience it, you cannot do that, right? and then there is, what's a WhatsApp goal as uh, architecture schools? Um, is it more vocational or is it more strategic? Mm-hmm. For me, any, any design school, um, I, I prefer to be thinking of it as more of a strategic kind of uh, education where maybe you don't know the codes, you don't know uh, certain details about a structure as soon as you graduate. And as students, we expect that, that we know everything, but maybe you don't know, Um, but probably, you know, critical thinking, you know, problem solving, ways of problem solving, and maybe you'll find ways to find that particular code or solve that particular issue, right? And I think about education being a long-term investment rather than a short term. Mm -hmm. So maybe you don't find the products of education in three four years down the line when you, you go to the field and say what did i learn for five years in architecture school but maybe 10 15 years down the line you realize you know there are certain things that was inculcated that is so important now mm-hmm. um, and uh, that, that that having that group project with my teammates was so important in my fifth year uh, with different personalities, how to negotiate um, uh, that, that came in handy like 10 years and you didn't even know about it, right? right, right. So there is a long-term non-vocational aspect of architecture design, I think, uh, shouldn't be missed because, um, yes, we can attain skills. Um, and, and that we might probably get it only by experiencing it or practicing it. But the the other skills like empathy, you know, uh, uh, social activism, uh, collaboration, critical Mm -hmm. thinking, creative confidence, these kinds of skills, it's a long-term investment. Uh, And for me, that should be one of the primary goals of architecture schools is to incorporate these skills. And architecture schools are a good place to fail doing that, Mm -hmm. right? Because there is not a lot of investment in terms of, of course, there's emotional investment, but in yeah. terms of economic or social investment, there's not a lot you can afford to, if, if a group project didn't work out and it failed, that's okay. Well, maximum, you, you might get a C grade or you might <laughs> fail. Hmm. Uh, but the, the thing you learn from that for the next group work, you're much more prepared. Mm-hmm. And in 10 years time, when you're put in a group team, you understand, okay, this is how I need to, this is my role, right? For me, those kind of skills uh, are important. Obviously, uh, someone like Tareando or others who didn't go through architecture school, um, and uh, you know, the, uh, there's nothing against that. I think uh, these are talented designers who found their own schools in their own way, right? Ultimately, what's a school? A school is where you get educated. There are former schools that we go through, but, you know, architects, someone like Tadejando traveled um, remarkably well during his uh, youth days. He went to Europe and other places, he Mm -hmm. sketched, and maybe he did more work during that time in educating himself than we would do in an architecture school. I, I would say you know f- school should be more of an idea rather than a building where we do things the goal is education and how do we
1: get that right great and uh, how much do you feel online education is going to change our field because uh, i for myself i'm pursuing a master's in bim management uh, uh, online so uh, it is actually pretty, pretty helpful as well. So I see this shift where you know there's going to be a hybrid between online and uh, live education. Hello. Yes, sorry, my internet connection was
0: unstable. Yeah. Continue, please.
1: Yeah, I hope you got my question. You know, uh, where? Hmm? Yeah, it, it's about online education. Whether the future of architectural education would be a hybrid between online and uh, real, uh, you know, live interactive classes.
0: Right, and I think the the whole COVID era has accelerated that, right? Yeah. Embracing the online version of how we do things. Um, it's kind of a, a, a shift in terms of how we communicate. Um, even uh, companies are changing the way uh, they're thinking about online, right? Um, Technology companies have uh, have embraced it much more quickly. Like Google, for example, they allow people to work at home. Uh, So there are certain uh, eras, I think, uh, uh, finance management or technology, which are more uh, easier to make that transition to online and remote kind of uh, communication. Architecture traditionally has been a very hands-on profession. You'd uh, like to feel the model. You'd like to, uh, you know, gesture about how we feel about certain design. The, the, you know, classical desk scripts is so important that your professor is hovering around you to tell you, guiding you that you might not be able to pick up through an online environment. Mm. Um, So, there there is a big challenge that we are facing here, too, at uh, uh, our university and how best to adapt to it. Uh, On one hand, that's where it's going. You need to embrace aspects of it. On the other hand, there are limitations and challenges that happens in a a remote environment. Um, I feel that uh, there are some strengths with remote learning, for example, you know, uh, design reviewers or critiques who probably couldn't have been available or accessible Mm -hmm. in the real environment now become accessible to you. Um, Maybe there are certain times when, uh, especially in design, you know, a student might have a question on a Saturday and might not be able to move their process until we meet them back again, but remote learning might able to, to kind of give those opportunities. Obviously, we need to create boundaries on uh, how much it impedes our own private life and where mm. to put those boundaries. But um, I think there are certain things that uh, are advantageous. And the way to look at it is to not to say we can replicate everything we do in the physical environment, in a virtual environment, rather than look at it and say, okay, what are the affordances of a physical environment? And what are the affordances of a virtual environment? And there are certain things you might be able to do virtually that you might not be able to do physically. Um, so for example, you're able to, let's say, collaborate with 20 different people on one piece of paper. Um, physically, maybe, you know, it might be difficult for you to do it. You have to hover around, but virtually you might be able to do it. Um, I don't know whether you heard about this mouse wars that are happening where you're trying to design and each one is trying to control the process on their end. (laughs) Uh, So I think there are affordances that remote environment is giving us that we need to incorporate it. Um, And as you said, there might be a hybrid version of it. Um, In the past at the University of Missouri where I used to teach uh, PhD students I had students uh, physically present, our resident students, next to me. It was a seminar format class, but I also had students who could join in virtually from other states like Texas, California, Florida. And initially, it was a little bit hard because you have a group of students there in the virtual environment, and you have your physical students. How do I communicate? Right. right. Slowly, I start, started. Uh, uh, and I, I, I love to do this conceptual diagrams. And
2: right.
0: where, do, where do I do it? Should I do it in the physical space? Do I do it in the virtual space? Anyway, I came up with a hybrid idea. I used to use a big Wacom tablet mm-hmm. and sketch it so you could project it on the screen. At the same time, my students outside the state could see it. Right. Um, so it was a little bit challenging in the beginning, but I always felt that those interactions that happen after about the 20 minutes of technological brooding and uh, you know, trying to resolve certain mm-hmm. issues, the next 50, 60 minutes would flow very easily. And at some point you wouldn't even know who is virtual and who is physical. It right, was um, right. in a seminar format, you need to have that interaction. So you could see my, my resident students having questions and interacting with virtual students and it would go back and forth. And then it would create this hybrid environment, which was uh, an interesting um, experience in itself, because they would also chat or they would put things in the virtual space that we could see and respond to. Whereas uh, in physical environment, maybe we couldn't do that, right? Uh, so, so I think kind of understanding, okay, what are those affordances
1: becomes critical, especially for architectural design. All right, brilliant. Uh, I think we had a fantastic session and uh, lots, uh, lots to discuss. Even more, but uh, I think we'll wrap it up for now. And hopefully, we'll have it. Uh, we have you in the future as well and talk a lot more about academia, architecture, and design. Uh, before I let you go, uh, we'll quickly jump to the quickfire round. I'll ask you a couple of brief questions, and uh, you could give us uh, brief answers. Absolutely. All right uh, uh, who's been uh, your mentors you know as an architect as an arch- academician I'm sure you had a lot of mentors who may, maybe your top few mentors who've uh, you know helped you in your life would say
0: my top mentors are my um, PhD advisor Professor Jerry Weisman um, uh, he's been a fantastic uh, mentor for me very patient with all these crazy ideas that I've come up with. Um, <laughs> Obviously my uh, mentor in Bangalore, uh, Zakaria, who was a senior architect at that time and I was just a novice and the way he, um, uh, you know, tried to um, uh, take me through the difficult process of introducing into practice, that was important. Um, One of my uh, good friends and mentors in Bangalore, Neville D'Souza, I really learned a lot from him in terms of, you know, detailing and, uh, how to think about every, uh, the, the eye for detail. I think I learned a lot from him.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Um,
1: which city would you consider your favorite?
0: Oh, uh, well, <laughs> it's hard to pick, but, uh, I would say, uh, I loved Seattle, um, San Francisco, um, Maybe in India, I would say Mumbai was my favorite city. I spent some time there when I was a child. Um, yeah, so those, those might be my
1: three top ones. All right, great. Um, who do you consider your favorite architects? Um, favorite architects?
0: Uh, Lou Khan was one of my favorites. Um, the whole spiritual thinking behind his design. Uh, in terms of spaces, I really love Frank Lloyd Wright uh, and the kind of experiential things you bring. Um, of course, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, social activism and um, the social aspects of designing that we usually lose mm-hmm. uh, people like Laurie Baker, uh, Alejandro Aravena. Uh, I think these are all
1: my favorite architects. All right. Uh, A lot of us have this doubt, you know, what's the difference between interior architecture and interior design? So uh, could you maybe tell us the difference between the two?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good good question because um, traditionally interior design sometimes gets a bad rap because people equate it to decoration, Mm -hmm. um, just the material aspects of it. Um, And, uh, you know, that has kind of, that perception has moved into interior design. Um, Interior architecture is a way of claiming that we do more than just decoration. Uh, We we are concerned about uh, life safety issues. We are concerned about structural integrity of buildings. We learn about construction. We have uh, knowledge about uh, material specifications. So I think that's that's the major uh, difference. It's more of a framing of what we do.
1: All right, brilliant what uh, what are your future plans? And uh, do you, you've you written quite a lot. Like I've seen your, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a resume, but that was, I think around a 30, 40 page resume where you had written quite a lot of articles, quite a lot of research papers. So could you tell us, you know, what you're uh, presently working on and uh, what are your future plans as an academic and architect?
0: Yes, um, well, the, the, uh, one of the aspects of being an uh, academician is you have to produce. <laughs> and that's the reason uh, you see those articles. Um, so currently I'm working on uh, a, a paper, a research paper for a conference at uh, Israel uh, called Design Thinking Research Symposium. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to figure out what design uh, boundaries are in this mm-hmm. current era. So I'm writing a paper called "What Design Is Not." So instead of saying what is design, let us look at what people don't consider as design. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working on. Um, so yes, in in terms of future, well, you know there is so much to learn further. Uh, how much ever you learn, it's a lifelong learning experience that you are indulged in as an academician. Um, certainly one of my uh, goals has been to work on this mid point between technology and design and how it could be made more accessible to you know marginalized students or uh, make it more um, affordable uh, to students who might not uh, be uh, you know uh, either um a fan of it or uh, they're not able to somehow see the impact of it in what they're doing. So uh, looking at technology as a means rather than end. So uh, that is something I've been interested in. So um, I'm trying to put uh, uh, some grants on virtual reality and augmented reality and design education and how that, might be a place where uh, we need to kind of uh, work on and see what the potential is. All right, great.
1: Um, what does a typical day in your life uh, look like as uh, an, academic, uh, <laughs> an academic? That's a good question. Um,
0: I, I start my day uh, with coffee, and I keep continuing my day with more coffee. It's a <laughs> habit that has come from my architecture school. Um, of course, I, there's a routine grind of emails, uh, meetings with faculty, students, administrative colleagues. Um, the uh, interesting thing about being an administrator is you, you have to deal with detail, minutiae as well as look at strategic visioning of the mm-hmm. school. So a lot of time goes into that. Obviously, I, whenever I find time, um, of course, research and writing and, uh, I have a, not such a big teaching load, but, uh, I need to teach as well. So prep- preparing for it and, uh, being able to deliver uh, the content. So that would be the typical day for me.
1: All right, great. Um, ha- uh, I couldn't really find you on, you know, LinkedIn or a couple of other social media networks. So, yes. Um, uh, have you, uh, Uh, Is it that you've not embraced social media or uh, is it that it's part of uh, your character or something along those lines?
0: Yes, for, um, I've been a little bit, even though I I write about technology and media, I've been a little bit averse of it. My foray into Facebook was also pretty late.
2: Um,
0: And um, something like LinkedIn, I I rather... uh, be more active in it, but I mm. keep finding myself not being for some reason. So, uh, it doesn't, um, become a part of my routine. So I forget it. And then after some days I might have to do something there. Yeah. So I think it's a matter of, uh, um, I don't know the, the aversion to, uh, putting myself out there, uh, too much, um, that probably has kept me guarded, but Uh, I think more and more we need to do that. I have uh, to update my scholar's profile. From the academician's point of view, there's a lot we need to do uh, that now becomes more quantifiable and uh, develop that network that um, I think it'll happen uh, in the future. But right now, I haven't spent a lot of time. Even Twitter is something very foreign to me. I don't use it at
1: all. (laughs) All Uh, my last question to you would be, uh, is, is, this is something I ask all my guests. Uh, what advice would you give to, you know, young architects, uh, or even architecture students just starting off? Um, well, first thing is, uh, I would say
0: I, I can talk only from my own experience, um, learn working with ambiguity because that's what design is, uh, how much ever we want, uh, regularity and structure, we are still in a swamp. And to embrace that swamp, um, and that's the nature of a profession, uh, that you can still be creative and probably it'll give you the inspiration to be more creative and be more confident in what you do. Um, There is also an aspect of design, there is a glamorous aspect of being in this creative field that gives you so much energy and if you're lucky, you are also able to do um, some good money and be successful. But there's also the dark side of the profession that there are days where you, there is failure. Uh, projects might not work out. Um, and the only thing that keeps you going is the endurance. Uh, to endure to yourself even the darkest uh, of those days because uh, design has that nature. And the more we are aware of it and not give up hope, I think the, the embracing the dark side of design, and embracing <laughs> ambiguity, uh, if you can take care of that, the good side will always come up and you'll always be able to enjoy successful
1: parts of it. All right, brilliant. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, sir, for coming to the Arcan podcast and sharing your thoughts, uh, your research, your views. And uh, talking a lot about design, uh, I've personally learned quite a lot and uh, I hope to have you in the future as well. So thanks again.
0: It's been a pleasure, Manisha. And I thank you for this uh, wonderful opportunity um, and, and keeping it very unscripted. I didn't know what to expect, but yeah. uh, there was very provocative questions that took me in very different directions. And so thank you for this very thoughtful and provocative discussion, appreciate it.